My guest today is a senior director at Lincoln Sales Solutions. Here's some things her colleagues say about her. Sinead is an absolutely fantastic leader and sets the benchmark for all aspiring future leaders. I was extremely fortunate to work with her department for almost four years and saw firsthand what a powerful transformation she oversaw within our business. Here's a second. Without ever upsetting the apple cart, she coolly and meticulously built an extremely successful organization that delivered constantly over quota performance. Janine McCabe, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks, Million. <laughs> wow. I just even read that, I gotta go, I cannot wait to talk to you. That's, there's some accolades. I'm very privileged to have a team, well, different teams over the years that we've worked with very well together and been very successful. So um, I would say the same about a lot of the people in the teams that I have too. So it, it, it's a two-way street. Well, it, you didn't lick it off a rock. So talk to me about a little bit about where you grew up and what sort of a childhood you had. Uh, so I was born in Dublin, uh, but I lived there for a year and then I moved to Cavan. So I was actually born and raised in Cavan. I lived there until I was 15. Um, very much, sorry, we can't, we cannot let that go. What happened to the accent? Well, when you move at the age of 15 with a Cavan accent up to Kildare, you kind of need to get rid of the accent pretty quickly. But there's still some words. So I still talk about school and I go to cool, things are cool and I go to the swimming pool. So the, the, anything with OO in it, I still have the Cavan accent, but... Um, it left pretty quickly, but very much kind of a country upbringing. I bought my parents from Leitrim, so I would have spent weekends in Leitrim. I'm from a very large family. Um, like this, I have um, one brother, three brothers and one sister, but I have 21 aunties and un uncles. Um, so there's 13 in my father's family and 10 in my mother's. So a very large kind of country-based family. Yeah. Are you the eldest? I'm the eldest, yes. I thought so much. <laughs> and actually there's quite a like I'm the my parents were quite young when they had me um, so actually I'm 15 years older than my youngest brother so there's yeah. quite a big of the five of us there's quite a big gap between each of us yeah similar similar in my family actually there's others yeah actually 15 years between my, my me and my elder sister um, and, and so you, you were saying you, you you probably you were in one place for a long time growing up in, in rural part of Ireland essentially what was it like then moving to Kildare bit of a culture shock I would say I would say I was probably very innocent and not very street smart um, found the transition quite hard I think that's a difficult age to move at uh, but in one way I suppose it benefited me because I kind of knuckled down for the first year um, you know trying to make I, I probably did more schoolwork than I normally would have because the, you know I was trying to get used to things but in hindsight, as I think with a lot of things that happen in life, things that you thought were the worst things in the world at the time are actually the things that shape you and the best things, right? So having the experience of moving at that kind of pivotal age and having to meet new people, make new friends, um, get used to going into the city centre on a bus, right, on your, on your own, it makes you grow up and it makes, once you go through an experience like that, the next time you encounter it, 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 it becomes much easier. And that would have been kind of a theme of the different things that have happened over the years that they've all looked pretty horrendous to me at the time. 
But I look back on all of them and go, thank God they happened. Um, or thank God that happened. Because sometimes it's that forcing mechanism that helps you learn and grow. Um, so I definitely, yeah. like, I would have ended up moving to Dublin anyway to go to college or university, right? So uh, my family are still around because I live quite near where we moved to now. And I have the benefit of having my family around me and friends. That's an interesting one because uh, you mentioned at 15, it's, it's horrendous. I mean, I can't imagine if I turned to my kids when they were 15 and said, okay, we're moving. And um, they, they would, I know what they would have said. They said, that you can move. We're staying here. <laughs> and, but then you do it and you realize it's actually, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And there's a lot of positives of it. And I, I think what you mentioned, and I think it's a really important thing is that, that feeling sticks with you, that when you come up against adversity later in life, there's that reoccurring theme that, okay, this doesn't feel right, but you've learned in the past that it, it may not be so bad. And, and yeah, I've never, never thought of it that way in terms of some of those little lessons of childhood can, can be so important. Tell me, outside of school, what were you interested in? You mean when I was younger yeah. or yeah. Um, big into reading always, um, also big into sports uh, when I was younger, not now, unfortunately. Um, and actually, when I was younger, um, it would have been I would have been kind of growing up in secondary school in the, at the end of the 80s. Mm. Um, and a lot of the talk then was about like by Irish and all that. There wasn't, a, you know, there was a lot of emigration. There was a lot of people leaving Ireland. And at the time I thought, I'm probably not going to have a career or a future in Ireland. And if I want to do what I want to do, I need to learn languages. Mm. And so I would have studied French and German in, in secondary school because when I was young, my, my dream job at the time was to be an air hostess, right? Because that was, that was actually... Now, it, it's not that long ago, I'm making it sound like it was, but that was seen as a really good job for a woman. Not that long ago, you're absolutely right. Yeah, or, and it was also going to give me the opportunity to travel and go to different countries. So even from like being a teenager, I would have been thinking about what am I going to do? Because I, at the time, it was quite a depressing place to be in Ireland. Um, and you needed to figure out a way easily um, how you would give yourself different options. So while I wasn't conscious that I was doing that at the time, I probably was trying to future-proof my future. And luckily, things changed so much in the 90s and the 2000s, particularly for women or for Irish people, um, with lots of different opportunities um, that I was able to capitalise on those. And doing those languages helped me in some of the jobs that I got when I started working. So with the languages, did you go abroad with them and work abroad and then come back? Yeah, I, went, I spent a summer in Germany uh, working in a restaurant. Um, I went to Trinity and did European studies, which was again with French and German. Um, and in second year, I actually failed my exams. Uh, and I was meant to go to on Erasmus. And I failed one exam, French, by 2%, which again was a disaster at the time. Um, so I decided rather than repeating the year, I would take a year off and I went to live in, I had an aunt who lived in Brussels uh, and I went to live with her ostensibly to kind of be an au pair. But while I was there for the year, I got a job in the European Commission. Oh. I was 19, um, really well paid. I was kind of an assistant for two German engineers in a French speaking department where they needed an English speaker. So 
like that was a really good job for me to get at that age and um got lots of training on office and using computers like because you wouldn't have had that type of stuff in the 90s so actually again i failed my exams i thought it was horrible <laughs> i thought it was a failure i ended up going to brussels for a year and then came back repeated the exam and, and passed and then went and did erasmus in grenoble in france for a year so I needed to fail that exam because my French wasn't good enough. Mm. But uh, so two things: I got to go abroad for two years, but I never failed an exam again because I probably needed that kick out of my comfort zone to know that you needed to study and work. So it was the best thing ever that happened because it created so many more opportunities, and it also made me cop on a little bit because I think I was taking the easy way out and thinking I could just coast, and I needed a wake-up call. And again, it was something that I really didn't love at the time, but I look back on it and I go, thank God I failed that exam. Yeah, for sure. Um, talk to me a little bit about the, who inspired you when you were younger. Um, I, I think my family, my parents. Um, so they would have been very young when they had me. They were 19, 20. Uh, both worked very, very hard. Um, my dad worked in the post office, but he had other jobs, side hustles, as they say. My mother worked in the home with five children. So there was always that uh, mentality of working hard, of um, doing the best you could and being the best that you could be. So I think I always wanted to live up to their, like they didn't have they didn't force me to study or to, you know, they weren't very, which was great. They weren't really directive, um, but they had that trust in, in, in us to be the best that we could be. And I think we all thrived underneath that. And I think they were really inspiring to see what they achieved um, and to want to be, uh, to make them proud. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was there anything then in those formative years that, were clues to you that ending up in sales? Not really. Like I wasn't the type of person that, you know, um, I used to do homework for people and they'd give me sweets. <laughs> so, they, I suppose they would be more the people who would be the, the, the sales people. So a role in sales, which is where I ultimately ended up, probably wasn't what I was aspiring to, but it was more, I, I think I did want to, I was very interested in the wider world mm -hmm. and uh, widening my horizons. So I, I didn't think I'd be in Cavan for my whole life. Mm -hmm. um, so as, maybe like I would be somebody who likes to work hard um, and do my best, right? So that's something that probably I would have always been like as, as a child and be quite responsible uh, and being a, the oldest try and be mature, even though I know there were lots of occasions where I probably wasn't. <laughs> um, but no real indications as a young person that sales was the person, was the place that I wanted to be. In fact, that only happened mid-career. Yeah. It wasn't something I ever considered. Yeah. Although, I tell you, selling a service like doing your homework for sweets, that's, <laughs> selling, that's providing a service and getting paid for it in, in, in a universal currency. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about then, if that wasn't there, how you did end up in sales. Where, where did that come about? Um, when I left college, I joined IBM. Um, so IBM were setting up um, 
I, I did European studies and actually that was probably a bit of a mistake because I wanted to do European studies that they had in Limerick, right, which was a very business oriented course. And I couldn't travel to Limerick, so I did European studies in Trinity, which was a completely different course and very academic, very history, philosophy, languages. Um, but after um, Trinity, I went and did a postgrad in international marketing and languages. And that was something that I absolutely adored, really worked hard on and did well in. So I joined IBM after um, university, six weeks after I left. And 21 years later, I was still there. But I started in tech support. And then I went into marketing for seven years, which is what I wanted to do because I had a marketing background. And my job in marketing after seven years got cut because they were cutting all of the EMEA marketing people. And they offered me a role, a sideways move into another marketing area or kind of a step sideways or down into sales. And at the time it was kind of a, a turning point and I thought I can either go and do marketing, which I know I can do, or I can take a risk and take a step down and move into sales because I'll always be able to fall back on marketing because I've so much experience in it. But And I'd like to try what sales is like, but what was putting me off a little bit is I thought you had to be very aggressive. Mm. I thought you had to be a great haggler. I thought you had to be a certain character to be successful in sales. And I quickly found out that that's not the case, but you don't really know that until you walk into sales. And I, I have to say I love sales because it's so clear what your, what, how success is measured, right? So having been in roles where you do lots and lots of work and you're very successful, but there's no real key, clear measure of success. You go into sales, you've got a quota, you make it or you don't. I love the clarity. Everything you do is to make that quota or to make your customers happy. And I love the clarity of knowing whether you're doing a good job in it or not, or what you need to improve, or the fact that you've got a very clear goal as to what success, look, everything that you do rolls up to making those customers happy or hitting that quota. So probably you regret a little bit that I hadn't gone into it sooner, um, but it was, it was a twist of fate in, in, in a way that I ended up there and stayed. And of course, working in IBM, you're in a fantastic environment for sales. You know, those guys really do take it seriously. Um, and there's lots of different options to move sideways, upwards, around, and get so much experience. Did, did you say 26 years, did you say you were there? No, 21 years. 21 years. Like 21 years. Yeah. How do you leave an organization after 21 years? That can't be easy. It wasn't, and I, it never really, like I never intended to work in IBM for 21 years when I joined as my first job. And it didn't really feel like I was in the same company either for 21 years because I was in sales operations, strategy, marketing, tech support, sales. I had so many different roles and there's some, like there's 350,000 employees in IBM or at least there was. So it felt like working in a different company um, every time you made a move. Mm. But it, it was a big decision to leave um, because if I think about it, I grew up with a lot of people that I worked with in IBM that were my friends. I grew up with them. I was 22 when I joined. Um, also, I think when you're in a company for a long time, it can kill your confidence a little bit because you start to think, am I only good at the job that I'm doing because I know who to ask or people know who I am or I've been here such a long time. And you wonder whether you might be institutionalized. And I think external hiring companies look at you that way too sometimes. Mm. Incorrectly, I, in hindsight. Um, 
So making the move is difficult, but again, one of the best things that I ever did. And actually, I probably only learned to appreciate IBM as much as I do now once I left. Because as you said, like I did sales school, which is a year and a half of intense, you know, you get a, you're certified every way, you're, you're trained to be a really good seller. Um, IBM is a company that's been in existence for 110 years, right? So I joined LinkedIn, which was 15 years old. So imagine the experience and learning from a company that's been doing it for 110 years and the, you know, the great things that you can bring um, to other companies because <clears throat> IBM would have made all of the mistakes or made all of the successes and you only appreciate the depth and breadth of that knowledge when you're out because people appreciate what you know and what you can bring and you only see that when you go to another company. So you get the benefit of bringing the best things from the previous company to the new company and marrying it with the best things from that company. Was it a Hugh Burns organization you were? It was. Hugh, I would have worked with you, yes. Yeah, top guy. Yeah, brilliant. To work with. Um, you, you would have transitioned into a leadership role during your time in, in IBM. Tell me what that was like in terms of how it might have challenged you, what you learned about yourself going from an individual contributor into leadership? Um, I, I, this, my, I think your style of management is something that you need to figure out what it is and what it's going to be. Um, I, I don't really believe in hierarchies or levels or things like that. Um, I probably ascribe maybe more to servant type leadership. So I see my role as somebody who sets people up for success, who removes the barriers that they need. It's important to me that I make things fair for people so that everybody has a fair chance to su succeed at what they need to do. It's also very important that I would know the people who work for me very well and that they would know me. So I am quite direct, sometimes painfully so, uh, as in, um, I, I say what I, I don't, I believe in being very authentic, right? And, and not because I'd rather tell people either the good news or the bad news and be direct. I don't like beating around the bush or pretending that things are brilliant or that they're not, you know, I want to be very open and honest with the people that I work with. Um, I think the way that you get the best out of people is to empower them. So I fundamentally believe that everybody is brilliant at something. Right. So you, you you often have a situation where you might not be in the right job, but everybody has a skill that they're brilliant at. And if you can work with the people in your team to uncover what that greatness is and encourage them and empower them to use it, you'll find that, number one, they're very excited, they grow, but they also grow their other skills. Right. And and my team grows as a result. The other thing I think that's important as a leader or that I find important is I don't want one brilliant person and six mediocre person or like I have 11 teams at the moment, right? So I'm not interested in making a number based on the back of two or three teams, right? So sharing those best practices and collaborating is really important. Like I know when I started on LinkedIn, one of the managers would come to me with an idea and go, I'm going to roll, roll this out for my team. And I just go, brilliant. How are we going to roll this out for EMEA? And they hated it. <laughs> and they hated it at the beginning because they wanted it to be their idea that would make them stand out. Mm. But actually, a lot of them um, came back to me a year or two later and they said, 
we see why you're doing this now because they would have gotten great ideas or great initiatives from other teams. Mm. And it's it's nice to be on a team where everybody has been successful or as successful as possible and everybody is assisting each other. You don't want individuals trying to be the best and keep all the best secrets for themselves. You want to be in a team where everybody... Is, so you become even more successful, I think, by yeah. sharing those best practices. I'm wondering how you do that, as in... There's always the ego involvement. People want to do a good job, want to stand out, and want recognition. And therefore, they come up with a great idea. And then, yeah, it's 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 how do you scale that? And at the same time, that they get to feel good that they instigated it some way. Is well, that just down to public recognition? Well, it is, and you you need to acknowledge and acknowledge the people who came up with it. And it's very, very important that, like, people are driven by public recognition. They're driven, they can be driven by salary or uh, promotions, but like a lot of that also is around public recognition or that somebody knows that will thank you for what you're doing and knows that you're going above and beyond or doing a good job. Um, I also think though, Sometimes I battle with the, we do a lot of recognition in LinkedIn and it's very important to recognize the people who are really making a difference for two reasons. One, to recognize them, but also to show everybody else in the team what good looks like, right? So what are the metrics? What are the things that you can do that can make you stand out? But sometimes I, I wrestle with it a little bit because when you recognize top performers all of the time, how do the people who are new or who are not performing feel? Right. So I also think it's important to acknowledge people who've really made an effort, but mightn't have just made it. Right. So, mm. uh, you know, quarters are over and you celebrate all the people who hit their quota. But you know that there are maybe two or three people in the team who didn't hit quota through no real fault of their own. Like a customer might have gone bankrupt or a deal might have slipped or like if they, like I have teams that renew a baseline of existing customers, right? And one of those customers could be really, really big and could churn. And there is nothing they can do possibly to recover that in the quarter. However, they recover half of it, mm. right? Which means they do almost as much more as all of the successful people. And you really need to celebrate those people because that's resilience. Mm. And that's people who are really, you know, they might, they might not have a great quarter this quarter, but mm. they'll have a great one the next quarter. And fine if, if, if they haven't done the work you're mm. not going to celebrate it right but if it's through no fault of their own or if they've really battled and shown resilience and gotten on with things you need to recognize those people too because they're your future superstars yeah i think there's something that not take a note of something in that and it was i'm trying to think i think it was carl dweck what, what a, a, mind, a mindset but in the book she was talking about and it was super parenting children but it was talking about how you praise and reward them that if you praise and reward them on, on their results, and that's where their ego attachment is, they'll actually lie and cheat to get good results because that's so important to them. But if you praise and reward them on their effort and on their behavior and doing the right things, almost independent of the results, um, then you, you create more, collaborate, more collaboration within those people because they're attached to the process rather than the outcome. Now, I know in sales, everything is measured by outcome, but I think there's something hugely important that we don't probably talk about enough, and I'm glad you brought it up, this idea of not just focusing on 
than on on those who managed to get over the line because we all know people who got over the line and they got there lucky sometimes and people with who did everything right didn't quite we, make it we do another thing as well actually that i find that to me this is the we also do kind of recognize team heroes and they're the people that mightn't that that so in each team we'll get everybody in the team to vote for the person that made a difference to their life made them happy supported them collaborated because we've lots of, you know we're in the middle of the great attrition we've lost the new people and to me to win the award as team hero that makes a difference to the people that sit around you every day whether it's humor support help advice being a buddy that's the award i want to win right so i don't necessarily i think that that speaks more volumes about the type of person that you are because um, you know sometimes people don't hit the big peaks of a quota because they're so busy helping everybody else right so you should be recognized just as much for being somebody that enables other people to be as successful as you are and, and to me that one is that type of reward is also really important because it can't just be about results because if you want to retain people or people want to be happy or feel valued it's about all of the other things that you do, not just about the numbers on a paper. Because I, I love yeah. that. I love that. I think I think social approval is far more important to us than any customer's approval or any PO. I mean, it's nice; it pays the mortgage, but I think the other one runs a lot deeper. Yeah, for sure. Um, I wanted to ask you. Uh, there's a question I had. Oh, I know what it was. Um, in terms of what you do, your day-to-day -day role as a leader, what are the kind of things that drain you from, from, an, from an energy perspective, things that you kind of have to summon up energy, and what are the kind of things that give you energy that you actually love and, and, and give you a sense of purpose and energy? So I'll start with the giving energy one probably first. Um, I have a team of 90 people and 35 of them started in the last six months. Wow. Um, because we're constantly, the team is growing, but also we have some attrition that was built up that didn't happen over COVID. Um, and it's very important to me that I know who the people are on my team, how they, where they came from, what they did, what makes them interested, their family situation. A lot of them have moved from different countries to Dublin. Um, so what I spent November and December doing one-on-ones with the 35 people because I... I started to think if I go back to the office, say whenever we get to go back and I'm sitting beside one of these people and I don't know who they are, that would be the worst thing possible. Now, when I sat down and said, oh, 35 one-on-ones, you know, that's going to really mess up my month or six weeks. But actually it's the thing I enjoyed doing the most because I was so impressed at some of the talent and the excitement and the skill and you know they're so happy a lot of them to work here and they're learning a lot that actually it was the most enjoyable thing that I did and I'm so happy I did it because I probably I was, almost wasn't going to do it because it was going to take so much time um so anything to do with working with people working with the team um anything about planning ahead so I like to think like a year two three years in advance I, I get a great kick because I I did work in strategy and operations for six years as part of my IBM tenure. Um, so thinking about planning and how to guarantee future success and get, getting some of those foundations in now to make sure next year works well is something that I really enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. The things that take time, 
sometimes we've got escalations, right? So we have to we have to try and collaborate with different geos and different teams. And sometimes people get very emotional. And I understand why, because it's about revenue and stuff like that. But having to be in those kind of, when it gets to that level that keep, people get very upset and you have to have an escalation call about it. It can be a bit draining and, and you wish it didn't have to come to that, that we could, because normally it doesn't come to that and we can agree. But when it gets to that kind of intransigence on both sides where you have to figure out a solution, it can be quite draining. But normally it works out and we've got, you know, we've got frameworks to help us do that. Mm. Um, and it depends on having very good relationships with people before. So you're encouraged. Um, but sometimes that can be difficult because um, it can take the good out of a win for both parties. Yeah. It can be a lose-lose situation. It's very mm. seldom it'll be a win-win situation. Mm. Somebody will feel a bit hard done by. And resolving anything, I think, where there's emotion is draining because you have to listen, you have to show empathy and... And, and you do that from a positive place, but it's tiring because it takes a lot of mental energy, I think, in, in that as well. It can be quite draining. Um, you mentioned that a third of your, your team, the wider team, you didn't know or didn't know you more than six months ago. Um, tell me about an experience you've had or something you've done that they don't know about you that they'd be surprised to hear. That won't get you in trouble. <laughs> um. That's, well, um, when I was younger, um, I used to watch Murphy's Microquism with my family every Sunday night. There used to be Murphy's Microquism and then Glen Rowe. I don't know if you watched it. It was a quiz oh, show. I know, know Glen Rowe very well. What was the first one, Murphy's? Microquism. Mike Murphy used to ha host a family quiz on Sunday nights where you had the parents and two children on it. Okay. And three families used to compete. It was a quiz show. Yeah. Um, but from a very young age, that it was my life stream to go on that show, right? Because everybody in Ireland watched it. Yeah. And behind my parents' back, I wrote a letter to RTE to ask if we could audition for it. And they came back and said, yeah, you can. And fair play to my parents. They brought us up to Dublin for the day and we auditioned and we got onto the show. Yeah. Um, so I, I think when you know what you want, I, I think a lot of people know what they don't want to do. It's very easy to go, oh no, I don't want to do that. But I think the people who know very clearly what they want and what they would like to get to normally achieve it because everything they do, you know, every move they make in a role, in different roles is to get them closer. Let's say if you want to be a CEO, people might go into finance, they might go into operations, they might do sales, they might do product, but they're doing all of these different roles in order to get them to be CEO or to set up their own company. So I think if you know what you want, you usually achieve it and you can get it. It, it. It's because lots of, and sometimes it turns out it's not what you want if you don't end up doing what you need. But if you want, if you really want something, if you go after it, even if you're 11, which I was, or 10 or 11, writing a letter behind your parents' back going, can we be on this show? Um, Sometimes dreams come true. <laughs> that would have been mine. <laughs> yeah. well, again, it's it's illustrative that if you don't ask, you don't get. And I think what holds you, you're right when you say people focus on what they don't want, and also not being afraid to ask what's the worst thing that could have happened. They didn't read your letter. Like you were still no worse off. Yeah. So what was the experience like? I'm curious. Um. Before they do the show, they always do a dummy run with different questions. And, mm -hmm. and the ultimate prize was to win a car. And in the dummy run, 
we won the car. Aww. But on the real show, we got knocked out in the first round. Aww. And I was disgusted because I, I was sure. I, I was only, I think I was 12. Mm. And at that age, I was sure we were going to win the car again. Mm. So um, I think the next day I was in a musical in school and we were all up on stage. And I hadn't told anybody because because we got knocked out in the first round that I was going to be on. I didn't tell anybody in mm. school. And the musical was on and the, the audience of all of the rest of the school watching and they were all going, <laughs> pointing at me on the stage, going, she's the one, she was on Murphy's Micro Quizum last night. So, um, it was, it was, yeah, it was great. Yeah, that was your 15 minutes of fame. Yes. <laughs> Tell me a little bit, Sinead, about a book that you've read or maybe a workshop that you've been on over the years that had a profound impact on you. So I'm a reader, but I'm not really a reader of business or non-fiction books. Um, so maybe um, when I was in IBM, we used to work with DESH schools. Um, so I was one of, the, I would have run that program in IBM. And first of all, we would have worked with um, children, you know, doing things like pres presenting skills, um, communication and then we would end up with a kind of a competition where they had to design an app and present it back to people in IBM mm. um, and as part of that I did a thing with um, girls in Desh schools and we did it around emotional intelligence and it was actually a course that I gave to them right so rather than a course that mm. I attended it was one that we kind of developed to talk to um, girls in secondary school about emotional intelligence and before I had kind of there wasn't a huge amount of development in this course, but before I done, I wasn't really sure what it was, mm. or um, I, I actually read up a lot about you know about can it be learned? Like we hear a lot of stuff about emotional intelligence being just as important, if not more important, mm. than IQ. Um, but it was a real eye opener sitting down with that group of girls. They're all around fifteen, and talking about different elements of emotional intelligence. Just, just sorry to interrupt you, Sinead. I just think for people who are listening to this, you won't have a clue what a Desh school is, only in Ireland right. or that, but just it's an international audience. So maybe you could just briefly explain what the Desh school is. Okay, so so a Desh school is a school in an underprivileged area. Um, so. Um, a lot of the, it could be, you'll have a mix of attendees of those schools, but they're in areas where there might be high levels of poverty or on, on unemployment. Mm. Um, and so sometimes you need to go a little bit further in enabling and helping those students unlock their potential because they mightn't have the support at home or um, a lot of them come from quite difficult situations. Like the, there's a mix, as I said, but there are some students who come from quite difficult backgrounds who might not have the support that they need. Mm -hmm. So the Irish government probably overinvest in those schools in terms of resources and to help them unlock their potential. So as a result, IBM would have gone to support one of those schools in a, an area very near our office to work with those schools to help develop either the boys or the girls in different areas. Okay, and you, in terms of, you said that was a very rewarding experience for you. Like some of the stories that I heard from, from the ladies in that class were very difficult. Mm. Uh, you, you, you know, parents that were absent or different things that they were going through. And they were very open and honest about the different things that were happening. Um, and, and I, 
you know, they're building resilience, helping them build communication skills, helping them be able to express their feelings and emotions, right? So I found it very uplifting and rewarding. Like it really made me appreciate what my children have or the upbringing that I had, but also appreciate the bravery and courage of those children and what they were going through and how they were dealing with it, right? So, and letting them know that it's not just about your results in an exam, that people who are successful in life are sometimes the people who've had the most difficult backgrounds and have learned coping skills that a lot of us in more privileged positions don't have. Mm. And and to give them hope and um, to acknowledge the great things that they could do and how great they were at talking about what they were going through or presenting or mm-hmm. um, building relationships. Like, Because to me, those are the skills that are... I wonder how we are going to... In the world that we live in at the moment, which is based very much online, like I see my own kids, um, they don't go out that much. They're playing on PlayStation and talking to their friends online. Now, the last two years, they haven't been able to... But like... Have they got those interpersonal skills or are they armed for success? Because they're the skills that we might need more of and that we in a different generation might have had naturally because that's the way that we interacted. So I wonder how equipped um, the young people will be for for what happens um, once we come out of the pandemic and when they get out into the big world. I do worry about that in terms of, for example, we don't, you know, we have to climb trees as a lot as a kid and say, okay, what is that in terms of skills? But it's, it's a, there's a lot. There's about, you set yourself a goal, there's risks, you learn to deal. If you fall and hurt yourself, you learn to pick yourself up and, and do it again. And so there's a lot of hidden learning that goes on in those kind of activities. You learn spatial awareness and so on. I think they do learn a lot too. I mean, there's been studies on, you know, people on PlayStation in terms of it. You know, they are communicating with other people where, I mean, I think 10 years ago, PlayStation, you played it on your own. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now you are communicating with a wider team. And I suppose it's different. That said, I would like to see people out on the street more, kicking ball, climbing trees. I do think there's a lot of particularly sales skills, uh, diplomacy, how to get on with other people and how to and, and, and understanding consequences that if you if you if you don't speak the right way to other people you might come over with a fat lip. Yeah. yeah. You, you, you don't learn that if people are protected too much and they're brought, you know, to all of these organized activities where everything is is over supervised. And uh, I do worry about that, but I guess time will tell somewhat on that one. Uh for sure. Um you're involved, I believe, or you were at least, with the Plato organisation. Yeah, that was actually true Hugh, Hugh O'Byrne, who you mentioned earlier. So IBM used to provide senior leaders to Plato. And just in case, Plato is an initiative run by the local enterprise office to support very small SMBs in getting up to speed in business. So you sign up for it. It costs a certain amount of money and you get training over a year and a half. That's probably worth about... 50 to 80 grand, right? Whereas you get a very, very small nominal amount of money. And so I was one of the business leaders and we had a meeting every month and we had a different topic. It used to be in the morning at half seven mm-hmm. until about half 10 on one Wednesday every month. Mm-hmm. And we might talk about digital marketing. We might talk about financing. We might talk about grants. We might talk about sales. Um, 
And the measure of admiration, again, that I have for those small business leaders, you know, a lot of them are like it's just them and their husband or wife. It's a small family business. They might have two or three people working for them. They have to do everything. Like a lot of them would be up until three in the morning working in their kitchen because that was their office taking orders. Right. And then they have to. So to see what they do, like to have that passion and commitment uh, and to be able to in some way either because I, I think you forget when you're in a big corporation that you get trained on how to lead people on HR, on recruitment, on building business models. A lot of the stuff that you take for granted when you're in a big corporation, because it's what you've always done, we would know. Uh, whereas uh, when you're an SMB leader or you've got your own company, you're probably a specialist in one area and it could be in engineering and product uh, in a trade, but you're not necessarily the best person on legal HR stuff or marketing or how to set up a website. So really eye opening. Um, and I would never, I would like I, the depth of admiration I have for people who follow their passion and take such a big risk because they're so passionate about what they're doing. And like some of them failed, uh, would fail, but some of them like they're entrepreneurs. Um, so I actually got just as much out of that because uh, I would deal, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be that small, but I would deal with SMB type customers or mid-market type customers, but to know what makes them tick, yeah. um, a big benefit. And it's nice to give back in some way. And again, you realize that you know stuff when, when you're trying to teach other people stuff or, or you're learning as much from them as they're from you. So great experience. I didn't like the half seven in the morning meetings and getting up that early. Um, but it was <laughs> you know, it's funny. I think if you, when you work in a corporate all your life, I've worked in corporates for many years. And when you go out on your own, you're a small business. You realize that there, it's like this underworld and it's very hard to describe, but right, you know, every single morning, even around Dublin, there's these networking groups and they'll meet at 7.30 and they'll leave at yeah. 8.30, you know, to start their day. And they're meeting with all these other businesses and it feels so different. It's like chalk and cheese. And it's, it's an economy and it's a powerful one, but it's so different to the corporate world. And it, that's all you've known, the little bubble. So I think it's great for, <clears throat> I think they obviously get something from you guys, from, from big corporates. They get a sense of how things work um, in a different context. But also I, I can fully understand how you can get something back from them as well, because it's a completely different dynamic and a different vibe. And, and a different energy that is, is, it's actually quite powerful. You sit around and watch people knowing that, you know, they have to make payroll at the end of the month. If they yeah. They're not there every single day and networking, look at, and they're looking out for each other as well. You know, if I'm an insurance agent and I'm looking out for the mortgage guy and vice versa. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's quite a rewarding place to, to be, but, but unrelenting. And I, and I can't imagine what the last two years must have been like yeah. for many of them because there's no safety net for a lot of them for sure yeah i'm curious by the way is it something you've ever fancied yourself going out on your own at some stage you know maybe as a consultant you know to, to work more now that you've had a taste of working with organizations like that but seeing what they've gone through and the risk that they've taken, I think it's something I would definitely consider at the end of my career. Mm. Uh, but I do have, I have three children and I've got a family. Um, I need to take care of them. So the risk part of me 
is happy to be in a salaried role, even though there can be risks when in a role like that too. Um, definitely something I would consider at the end of my career, maybe. Um, but but at the moment, I have to say I value the security of yeah. knowing that I'm in a... So yeah. more of a special project later on rather than a, a kind of an itch that you have right now. Yeah. Like, I, I think I used to always... I'm always very interested in, I think I used to want to be a real estate agent, right? Before the boom, because I was always very interested in houses and buying and selling houses and seeing inside other people's houses. Um, so that would have been something that I would have thought about. But like, I think it's like you watch those programs <laughs> on television. It's not like it's cracked up to be, right? So as you were saying that, Sinead, I was thinking you mentioned about the air hostess earlier uh, and then the real estate agent and I think they're, they're both professions that don't live up to the... To, to they, no. <laughs> no. I, I know actually, for, again, from that networking, a guy, and he's a Remax guy and they, that it's such hard work and it's, it's, it's really hard. I've seen what they, you know, when the, when the bus came and what they went through and it's, it's, not, it's not fun. I think it, it, the idea that appealed to me more was finding the right place for the right people. I think, and I suppose yeah. that's what it's that solution kind of yeah. problem solving type part of it that was really what was motivational. But again, they're, they're things that, yeah, before uh, you know what you're getting into. As a parent with three children and a, and a full time job, do when, when you want to wind down, is there anything other than kind of collapsing with a book? that you like to do? Uh, I do a meeting with my team every two weeks, a huddle, just to talk to them about the, what's going on. And a part of that huddle is a Netflix corner, right? So <laughs> I watch quite a lot of Netflix or whatever's on telly, right? So um, especially in the last two years. <laughs> and I'll make a point because because I watch so much um, stuff at nighttime when the kids are in bed that I will share with them some of the great... And actually it's been really interesting because we've all kind of i think watched a lot more telly during the lockdown right so we would be i would be presenting what i was watching on netflix only for people to give me recommendations about what i want to watch next so yeah. i probably spend rather too much time yeah. watching stuff uh, on netflix late at night time when the kids are in bed yeah. try and get out a bit walking or I'm, I'm doing catch to 5k again in the last few weeks i used to run quite a lot and stopped two years ago um, so I'm trying to get back into that again, but a, kind of a busy lifestyle with, with the full-time job and the three kids, there's not much time for much else, which sure. is something I probably need to work on. Yeah. And out of all of this, I mean, you, you mentioned the fact, again, you've, you've had new people on your team, you haven't physically met them yet, which is not ideal. Um, is there anything that when all this is over, you think you'd like to keep? I, I used to, I really did not like working at home right? and I live in Leakslip and it's about an hour and a half commute into Bagot Street where LinkedIn is uh, and I really didn't like working at home because I liked being with people and I liked having that proximity and you know that gives you energy working with people on a daily basis and you, you come up with ideas very very quickly. Um, I think probably like I would say maybe two and a half, three hours a day commuting and probably when things get back to normal and it's a matter of when, not if, maybe I would work one or two days at home. 
um, because there are certain things that you can like calls that you don't need to be face to face. So I think I would keep that. Um, the other thing I found during the pandemic is I got to know my neighbours an awful lot better than I knew before, right? Because I remember the first three months you weren't allowed to have anybody in the house. The kids weren't allowed outside at the very, very beginning, if you can think back that far. But the only people you really saw for a few weeks at a time might have been the people that live around. And actually, when the children were allowed out, they started playing a lot more with different children in the estate. Right, so their network grew because they could only play with people that live near them outside because they weren't going on play dates and stuff. So that getting to know the people around you a bit more and spending time and getting to know them has been a big benefit. Or getting to know your own environment when we couldn't go outside of the 2K zone. There are lots of really lovely places around here that we wouldn't have spent time. We would have gotten into a car, gone to different places uh, but we had to resort to the places that were local and there's lots of brilliant places. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's, um, be grateful for what you have um, and the things that are near you and the things that are good. I think that that's what I would keep. I'd imagine that as a leader in an organization where you have so many young people, many of them who have come to Ireland from overseas, some of them live in the, on their own in an apartment or sharing it with a co-worker and they didn't get what they signed up for in terms of experiencing Ireland and so on. Um, it must require a lot more a lot more empathy and understanding and touch and contact, which in a paradoxically when you're, when you're not physical, well maybe it is a paradoxical, maybe it's because you're not physical, you have to do more of it. But um, I'm wondering, was, was that something that, that came easy to you? Was it difficult? I think I am very interested in people and what makes them tick and, and how they are, right? More than how they're achieving or anything like that. So I actually think somebody in a leadership position reaching out to figure out how people are and have a conversation not about work, but just about life sometimes is just as important. And you, and I don't do it to be meaningful. I do it because I actually want to know, because I was very conscious, I think we all are, of the people that moved from countries, couldn't go home. They were stuck in an apartment a lot of the time on their own. Did not, there wasn't, the big benefit of Dublin is the fact that it's quite small. It's an international environment. In LinkedIn, the food is amazing. So people, you know, the food, you know, People used to have um, a week's holidays and they would come in on their days off to have lunch and LinkedIn. Like, that's how nice it is. Um, so they weren't getting the benefits of that experience being young. So like we, we, would, have, we would have been hyper aware of, of people in those situations. Mm. We would have been hyper aware of their mental well-being and wellness by touching base with them. Like there's, I know there are scenarios where managers would meet them face to face for lunch just to get them to see somebody because it's hard enough moving to a new company but not being able to go into the office and yeah. learn like even trying to get good at your job a lot of the time you get good at your job because you hear what everybody else is doing around you and if yeah. you're not sitting in an office able to do that and you keep on having to ask people favors yeah. you know can you tell me about this uh, so we would spend a lot of time introducing them to everybody in the team so they're not going to one person all the time with mm. all the questions so you want to spread your uh, questions a lot mm. ar around different people mm. um, we also would have 
done specific wellness type activities around mental well-being with the team calling out that like the managers that work for, they would be very caring about their people right mm-hmm. and, and worried about people um, we did allow people to work like we've got a work from another country policy um, now it's not maybe as extensive as some other companies but we would have allowed them to work from mm-hmm. another country for six weeks six business mm-hmm. weeks a year um, and be very flexible on them going back mm-hmm. to countries because like part of them were saying well why do we need to be in Dublin when we could be in France, but but like there are tax implications and different reasons uh, and nobody knows, like you could go back to France and not be able to get back because of of the pandemic. So had to be super aware of how those, particularly the people who are non-national, right, who didn't have a network or the, particularly the people who started during the pandemic. Yeah. 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 Oh, I understand that. Um, Question I have for you, which is a two-parter, I'm just conscious now of time, um, is what in the greatest positive change you've seen in the workplace in, say, the last 10 years, and what one thing, looking forward, would you like to see change? Something that maybe we're not there yet type of situation, and you'd like to see it nudged a little bit. Positive change, I suppose, might be... It's not in the workplace. I suppose it's in the Irish market. It's the it's the emergence of inside sales or virtual sales as a sales function, right? So we in Dublin are a hub for a lot of those companies. Um, I think the pandemic showed that, like sometimes I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder when field salespeople look down and inside salespeople, right? So I, I don't like that, right? Um, and I actually think that the pandemic, everybody became an inside salesperson or a virtual salesperson. And I am so proud of the teams that work for me or have worked for me in the past. And I know they're just as good and cons- like lots of million dollar deals, lots of hundred million dollar deals happened with no face to face contact. Mm-hmm. Right. So sometimes that perception that a centrally located sales force or an, even an inside sales force is inferior to another sales force annoys me because I, I think there it's not based on any fact at all it's just an assumption that's not true and some of those salespeople are outstanding uh, and they can do the big enterprise level deals just as well in fact they're much more digitally native they're much better at building virtual relationships or or multi-faceted relationships with lots of different people sometimes you know I think 20 years ago, field salespeople were hired because of their contacts, because they had great contacts in with CFOs or CIOs, and they were hired for their relationship capital sometimes more than anything else. Uh, but with everybody, like one in five people moves jobs in January, um, there's way more people involved in every buying decision. So you need different skills, right? So for me, that's the biggest change. And I think actually the pandemic has shown that... Um, we should value those type of roles a lot more. I suppose that that's the change I, I, I want too, is, is that there isn't that perception that inside sales is a funnel for future field. Yeah. You know, they're, they're in their own right, they're as important and relevant and skilled as any other sales function. I think this, the pandemic has certainly killed that one to, to some degree because if you're in field sales, now you're the fish out of water. Now you have to reskill and, and learn how to do this differently and, and, and maybe you know, realise it isn't as easy as it looks. 
Um, two very, very final quick questions. One, uh, your house is burning down, your family are safe, any pets, they're all safe, your phone is safe, and you have time to run back in and grab one item and rescue it, what would it be and why? Actually, I have one practical answer and one bit frivolous answer. The practical person in me, would the first thing I would go is get the passports because you okay. need that to set up your new identity and to be able to set, you know, if all of that stuff is gone, and you need something, the practical part of me would get the passports. Yeah. If it was the real me, I think I'm the type of person that's not really into possessions or things, I'm not very materialistic. However, there's one thing that I really love and that's um, art. Mm. Uh, and I have a few nice pictures that I bought. Uh, and the first one I bought was a picture by Jonathan Nuttall. And I love that picture, right? And, and I love, I've had it for 15 years and I still look at it all day, every day and think it's lovely. And probably it's the only possession, it's probably the one thing that I, would, I, I wouldn't be able to replace. And I, I'd love to have that picture if I was taking something just for me. Yeah. I'm thinking that you need to get a little envelope and put the passports in behind the picture. Yeah, 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 good idea. <laughs> yeah. Fine. And a final question, when your time on this planet is done, Excuse me. When there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title to be? Probably a bit of a cliche, but based on the past experiences that I've had, I think it would be when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, right? So a little bit cliched, but I think life is a, a journey, a learning experience. You can turn them, you know, if you can turn them to be positive experiences in the end, everything does kind of happen for a reason. Um, if some of the bad things didn't happen, you wouldn't be where you are today. So uh, I, th I think that would be probably my cliched title and probably be another <coughs> thousand books with the same title, but that's probably what, what mine would be. Oh no, I love it, I love it. And you, you, could, you could you could take the title and the lemonade stand or something like that. You can make it really stand out on the, I love it. It's a great idea. I do, I think, it, and it speaks to, I guess it speaks to your journey. Um, Thank you so much for being my guest today, Sinead. It's been a really insightful, thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can now understand the testimonials and why they, they're, they're so glowing. It's, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an extraordinary career you've had. And, uh, and, and, and you have somewhere to go, I'm sure, as well. There's, there's, there's more. Let's so, see. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know there is. So, yeah. Um, I don't need to wish you luck, you've made your own luck. And so uh, thank you for being my guest today, I really appreciate it. Real pleasure, Paul, thanks a million.